next installment of our Live on Web series. Today, we will be focusing on driver training. I'm joined on set by Boyd Stevenson of American Trucking Associations and Don Lefebvre, President of the Commercial Vehicle Training Association. In a few moments, we will also be joined by Dan Berth, TT's Senior Features Writer. We will dive into the ongoing efforts by FMCSA to develop entry-level driver training standards and hear directly from a top trainer at a large truckload fleet and the program manager at a training school. In addition, we'll discuss several efforts that are underway aimed at cutting into the driver shortage and try to answer many of your questions. There are several ways you can interact with us during today's chat. You could send your questions and comments by email to share at ttnews.com or comment within this article page. At the bottom of this page, you can learn more about the sponsored of, sponsors of today's chat. They are Contract Leasing Corporation and your company resource. Okay, I want to begin with Boyd. Thank you for joining us. I know it's a very busy week for, for both of you, but thank you for taking some time out uh, to be with us today. Uh, I'm wondering if you can start by giving us a little bit of background on the driver training efforts, which I know date all the way back to the 1980s. Sure, and thank you very much, Neil, for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you and to the audience. Um, as you mentioned, uh, entry-level driver training has been something that has been envisioned in congressional legislation since the early 80s. It's currently the longest open rulemaking uh, in the federal government. So this is something that's long overdue. And uh, you know, the, the agency attempted to put out a rule in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, that rule was unfortunately challenged in court. Uh, and uh, then the, the court sent it back to the agency, and on top of that, uh, that was in, I guess, 2004. The agency tried again in 2007. Uh, and then finally in 2012, uh, Congress said uh, that they'd had enough and uh, they redirected the agency to do it. They did make one big change, though. Mm -hmm. This time around, uh, entry-level driver training is something you have to do before you get your CDL. Mm -hmm. Previously, it was something that was always entertained as you would do it later. Mm -hmm. So that really kind of brings us to today. So I, I want to mention we have on our website, ttnews.com, uh, we have a, a package called uh, a TT Archives. Each week we um, find something from the 80-year history of transport topics that we're, we're showcasing. This week we have the uh, lead story from the 1980s uh, edition uh, of transport topics where the uh, driver training was uh, initially passed, signed uh, into law by uh, President Reagan at the time. Uh, and, and started the process, which uh, we still are talking about today. So through MAP 21, Lloyd, I know that uh, FMCSA is going about this a little differently than in the past. I know they put together uh, a 26-member panel, which you are one of the members on, which is one of the reasons we appreciate you uh, being here to uh, share the information with us today. And they're going about a process called negotiated rulemaking. Uh, there are a lot of buzzwords uh, around DC. I know right now, in talking about driver training, that uh, that is one of them. I I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about the panel itself and, and what exactly negotiated rulemaking means. Sure. Uh, negotiated rulemaking is something we have not heard a lot about in the trucking industry, uh, but it does date back uh, about 20 years now. Uh, it's been in use. Generally, tend to find it used in the Department of Education or the Department of Energy. Uh, there have been some Federal Railroad Administration negotiated rules. But essentially what happens is the agency puts together a committee of interested parties. Uh, ATA is obviously an interested party in anything that's going to affect the trucking industry. Uh, in this particular case, uh, there are 26 
and we will, uh, all of the committee members need to come to consensus uh, and make a recommendation to the agency about what an entry-level driver training rule should look like. Um, after the committee makes that recommendation, uh, the agency, of course, you know, we, we, we can't let just 26 groups or people bind the federal government, so the agency is free to, to agree or not agree uh, as it sees fit. And I should add that the agency is one of those 26 mm -hmm. parties, uh, so as far as the committee itself is concerned, uh, they are just another person sitting at the table. Uh, but then after that, they will put the rule out for comment uh, as a proposed rule, and things really go uh, much as they would in the traditional mm -hmm. process. The idea just being that those who were most likely to have concerns about a proposed rule probably were represented on the committee and will be unlikely to raise any serious challenges. So bringing everyone, a lot of different groups, to the table ahead of time and as opposed to comes out and then maybe some, some of the negative reactions. Let them have a voice earlier in the process maybe than otherwise. Exactly. So I know the first two-day meeting, there's a series of two-day meetings, and we'll get to the uh, schedule uh, timetable shortly. The first two-day meeting took place last month. Uh, can you give a, 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 bit, uh, a bit of details to what took place uh, at this first uh, set of meetings uh, for this process? Sure. The, the first meetings were uh, as boring as you would imagine a, a committee's <laughs> early meetings being. Uh, we did a lot of procedural things. Uh, we sat around and decided what it meant to come to come to consensus. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the only thing we had to have unanimity on was what consensus means. Uh, we decided that out of the 26, uh, three people can say no, and uh, something still has that consensus to move forward. Uh, four or more say no, and it's out. Uh, and and we, we, I think that was a really good choice. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to get 100% uh, of of the cats you're trying to herd to do anything, and uh, 23 out of 26 is, is pretty good. Um, the other thing that we really did was kind of give everyone an opportunity to, to say you know, who they were, what their organization uh, represents, uh, and finally we had a discussion about what exactly an entry-level driver is, and that is really the only substantive discussion we had while we were there. And we're going to get back to that in a second, but I want, <laughs> but I want to turn to Don now. Thank you also Thanks, for Dale. taking the time Thanks to for me. come over uh, and join us. Now, you uh, CVTA has a uh, member uh, of the panel. Uh, you are not on the panel, but one of your staffers are. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, you were in attendance, I understand, at that first meeting also. Just wonder from, from the uh, audience, I guess, perspective, if you could just share a couple thoughts as to uh, yeah, I mean, how I, that went. I, I thought, um, thought it went well. I, um, I think that there was a, a great uh, sense of anticipation and build-up to, mm -hmm. uh, to this committee. Um, I think um, people want to run before we walk, and we had to kind of go through the, uh, the, the as board mentioned, the... Uh, uh, procedural aspects of this, which is actually very important. Um, part of what we did last week was actually establish certain committees mm -hmm. to break down the uh, the respective issues. But um, I, I I'm really left with a sense of optimism. I think people are glad that we um, that we are starting this process. It is a short timetable that I, I know you'll kind of mm -hmm. get to in a set uh, in a second, but it's. Uh, it's we're cramming a lot of uh, dense material in a short amount of time, but I think there's I remain optimistic that we'll uh, we'll tackle it. So let's go to a, a question that we received leading up to today's program uh, a number of times. Uh, 
what is entry level? Uh, I understand um, it did come up a bit at this uh, first meeting, uh, so I'll turn it over to the both of you if you could sort of uh, help uh, our viewers understand w what the goal is here, what exactly that is supposed to mean. Well, well actually, I'd, I'll turn it over to Boyd because he asked that exact same question at the, uh, at the committee. Uh, and, and certainly a ATA had some ideas about what an entry-level driver was, but uh, you know, we thought it would be very important to get you know, those 26 folks around the table to say kind of what we thought it was. And, uh, you know, and there are some concerns out there. Uh, anyone that's, that's dealing with drivers knows that right now we have some, some uh, special issues uh, going on that might result in your CDL not remaining current. Um, we've got some issues related to medical certificates uh, that might have a CDL downgrade attached to them. Uh, that can be both when a driver lets something expire uh, as well as uh, when the state just doesn't process it. Um, and so we wanted to raise sort of those cases early to say, we've said that you have to do this to get a CDL now, but who has to do it exactly? Are we going to grandfather everyone? Uh, the good news is we are. <laughs> that, well, that, that was another question we received a, a number of times on the sort of uh, basic understanding. We have, we're going to get into later some, some more detailed questions, but that was one in terms of what is entry level or current drivers grandfathered, and you're saying you're expecting that they will be. And, and ultimately, the, the committee is waiting until tomorrow morning to finalize this, yeah. but uh, at the end of our last meeting, it sounded like we were, we were coming to terms that uh, entry-level driver training, ELDT, was going to be something you were going to have to do once, and it was going to be good forever. Yep. Um, so that, uh, that should be some, some good news. It might be something that you have to do. There may be different portions of ELDT mm -hmm. um, related to an endorsement or moving from Class B to Class A, where if you'd had Class B entry-level training and then you upgraded to a Class A, you might have to do something mm -hmm. new. But once you have that Class B section, you're never doing Class mm -hmm. B again. And I think that's what we're. I'm sorry. Now. No, please. Uh, I think that's actually what we're gonna. You know, what we're covering probably uh, tomorrow mm -hmm. and going forward um, it, it are the the specifics of mm -hmm. those uh, particular areas. The other real basic question I received a number of times was, assuming this goes through this time, this is going to be a regulation that's going to cover all drivers, uh, and is going to be an industry wide. Uh, rule that everyone's going to abide by. That is what the goal is here, just so everyone can be clear, correct? That's that correct. is the goal. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I want to turn to a comment we received as we uh, get into the some of the um, uh, debate a little bit from uh, Mark Greenberg. He's a chairman of the New England Tractor Trailer Training School. Uh, he was commenting about one of the discussion points he viewed, an important one, was hours versus performance-based when it comes to developing the rule. Uh, his comment was, uh, the need for a performance-based test has been widely acknowledged as a solution and replacement of the, form of the former hourly proposed rule is a group moving in that direction. I know in some of our discussions leading up to today, this hours versus performance-based has come up. We received a number of comments. Uh, wondering your thoughts on, uh, on, on that comment and the question he's asking about what direction this might be moving. Yeah, I, I, so I, let me just start uh, by prefacing. This was um, the issue that uh, uh, was really faced back in 2007 when an hourly standard was uh, put forth. Um, CBTA and others uh, led the, the fight against hourly programs for um, a host of reasons, but uh, one, it really dealt with uh, the impacts on 
Uh, one, there, well, there was no data to suggest mm -hmm. what number of hours uh, equated to safety. And secondly, it had some adverse effects on financial aid and actually it, uh, some other areas that I won't go into. Uh, but from our standpoint, we do believe in a performance-based approach, um, and we think that over the, uh, the, the next couple of weeks, that's ultimately what the committee is going to determine. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the more people really understand it, um, they, they will look to that as, a, uh, as the model moving forward. Would you agree with that? Uh, the, the big question for a long time, and as Don mentioned, in 2007, the proposal was an hours-based proposal. And, you know, there was a study done by the American Transportation Research Institute that looked at a lot of different truck driving school programs, uh, carrier programs, some as short as 50-some hours, the longest of which was 288. And there was no difference in safety performance. Um, and that indicates that either the sweet spot on an hourly basis is under 50-some hours, it's higher than 288, or maybe the sweet spot isn't mm -hmm. uh, on an hourly basis, but something else. And we really thought from the very beginning that performance space makes sense. It, it does get the students that are able to master things there quickly, but probably more important from a safety standpoint, it means that the students who can't master the things they need to will never be on the mm -hmm. road. Absolutely. So, uh, as it was mentioned earlier, the next meeting uh, of the uh, panel, uh, these are all two-day meetings, uh, tomorrow and Friday. So there's a lot uh, we appreciate uh, going into the next couple days, uh, taking the time to, to brief everyone ahead of the next meeting. Uh, the schedule, as it's uh, posted on FMCSA's website, uh, April 9 and 10, April 23, 24, May 14, 15, uh, and May 28, 29, uh, I believe June 15th is sort of the date, is that the deadline, I believe, to sub submit a report to FMCSA, and then they're going to attempt to, to proceed from there? Right. So the goal is on the 29th, with, before the mm -hmm. committee walks out, for us to have our report ready to go to FMCSA, mm -hmm. uh, and FMCSA <coughs> then to, by that June 15th date, mm -hmm. to have transformed that into something that they think is final that they would ask the committee to sign off on. So after many, many, many years, decades of, uh, of sort of trying to get to this point, maybe there, there's an end in sight this time, potentially. I, that, that is right. Uh, we, you know, they have set a very, very ambitious pace mm -hmm. uh, to tackle some very, very contentious issues, but fortunately we have an excellent mediator, and, uh, you know, and I think there really is a will within all parties around the table to to come together. There's not necessarily agreement on everything, mm -hmm. but one thing there is a universal agreement is that we do need an entry-level driver training. Group. Absolutely. So I know last time uh, some of the comments uh, was about some cost-benefit analysis, potential safety, uh, evaluating potential safety benefits, potential costs in relation to this rule and, and the process, I believe, based on the agenda that was posted late last night. That might be something of discussion this week. I'm wondering if you could just briefly uh, uh, touch upon what is sort of meant by cost-benefit uh, cost analysis and, and how you may be going about addressing safety possible, safety benefits possible cost uh, issues. Sure. Um, cost-benefit analysis is something that ever since President Reagan, the federal agencies have had to look at in their rulemaking. And 
it sounds very complicated. It's not. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to score all of the benefits of a rule against what it costs to implement the rule. Um, if it costs more than the benefits you expect, uh, then we don't put the rule out there. And this, in fact, was the challenge with the proposed rule in 2007, was at the end of the day, its costs that could be demonstrated exceeded the benefits. Uh, and that's one of the reasons the agency has been very, very forthright about attempting to get as much information as they can about the benefits of training. Mm -hmm. uh, because one thing we do know here is that I think intuitively, uh, all three of us can agree there are probably safety benefits to driver training, but it's very difficult to quantify exactly what Correct. they are. And, and, and also, actually, this kind of relates back to a question you asked earlier. Will, will this become uh, a regulation? Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of hurdles I think we have to, 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 to uh, uh, overcome before we get there. Um, obviously, first is that we have to achieve consensus, mm -hmm. and that's been defined as uh, no more than three negative votes. Um, but this cost-benefit analysis is a huge one. Um, and w essentially, we have to go through and add up all the costs of what it would be to send um, individuals to training programs, what the cost of those training programs mm -hmm. are, versus what the safety benefits. And as Boyd, I think, articulated, is the uh, uh, those safety benefits are oftentimes hard to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last aspect to that is also a lawsuit. Um, if there is a, uh, you know, there's always the potential for a lawsuit. So the, the, the answer to whether this will become a regulation is w we think so, but stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you both. Uh, I want to take just a quick second here to remind our viewers that you can send in your comments and questions uh, during the show today. We're going to get to some many more of them uh, in a little bit. You can email us at share at ttnews.com, comment uh, within this article page. Uh, I want to transition for a moment here. Uh, Dan Berth, who will join us in a second. Uh, earlier this week, he had the opportunity to uh, interview Tommy Fox. He's a uh, truck driver and a longtime driver trainer for Conway uh, Truckload. Uh, Dan had uh, an opportunity to ask him both a, a little bit about uh, what we've talked about here with the entry level and to just get an additional perspective about um, what it's like out there as a truck driver, uh, also a training uh, uh, an upcoming uh, crop of uh, drivers. I think we're going to go to that uh, footage now. We go about measuring their progress and the skill levels uh, for the people that you're working with. We we have a uh, a program here. It's it's proficient, non-proficient still needs training. If they can complete the task satisfactory then that's what we're looking for i mean we don't have a grading system you know a b c d f we don't have that we just there are certain things we look at for turns and backing and relate customer relations safety paperwork and as if they can do it unsupervised then that's what we use to pass them on that task great are there things that uh, uh, would make your job easier or more effective, would you say? Yes, yeah, I do. I think if students had a, how can I put this? If they had a larger experience level with OTR driving when they come into the truck, that would, that would help me out a lot. 
and all trainers. And at it, school, it, and I don't know, get it from school or get it from the company, whatever. But if they had a, a better idea of what we actually do day to day, I think that would make it a lot easier. Okay. You uh, deal with a wide variety of, of, of people who um, are, are learning to drive, as I understand it. Um, can you talk about uh, um, the differences that you see in, in the training requirements for, let's say, younger people versus older people who are coming in to, to learn the, the occupation? The younger people pretty much they're go-getters you know they just want to get in the truck and go older people you know they want to know why who what all that uh, and it's it's uh each group has their own issues and it's kind of fun to work around each one because you'll get a kid that's just going oh wants to do this and then you know he gets the carpet pulled out from under him and then the older guys they're more or, or the older drivers, I should say, are more into, uh, you know, they want to take their time, do it right the first time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like I said again, each group has their own issue. Okay, we want to thank uh, Tommy for taking the time out to uh, speak with us. Uh, we also found it uh, a unique opportunity to uh, interview him from inside his truck. We thought that was a, a neat little touch. We appreciate that. Also want to make you aware that uh, there is an additional piece um, of that interview uh, that will be available uh, on our website and on YouTube uh, uh, later on today. Uh, thank you, Tommy. So I want to welcome Dan Berth back to the set. It's been a number of months since uh, he's been on. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you for uh, joining us uh, today and, and uh, doing some of the legwork with that interview. I know you have a, another one we're going to get to a little bit uh, later. Uh, what was your uh, what were your takeaways from uh, from your conversation uh, with Tommy? Well, number one, uh, uh, it's good to remember that it's important for people to to drive as part of the learning process. I think uh, it's clear that no amount of instruction can prepare people completely for what they're in store for. Um, you know, he talked about. Uh, uh, when he goes out with a driver, uh, he's taking them uh, with a loaded truck perhaps for the first time, right? Or he's going over the mountains for the first time. These are experiences uh, that uh, drivers have to go through in order to really uh, acquire the skills necessary for, to do a good job. So it takes time. I know we're talking about um, sort of minimum training standards uh, as part of this rulemaking, but um, uh, I think it's it's good to re, uh, to emphasize that uh, companies have a responsibility to provide some finishing uh, training for these drivers, even after they come out of whatever training they get to get the CDL. That's really a starting point, and uh, I know many companies do this now, and uh, um, and and probably they need to um, consider um, you know how they can improve that process uh, going forward. I thought it was interesting. Uh, he talked about the 7,000-mile program that they have. They tried to get them, as you said, uh, um, in a lot of different uh, scenarios, different uh, portions uh, of the country. Uh, even I think he referenced, you know, sort of get them in a truck stop. They may not be familiar with some of the uh, the, the workings uh, there. And I know that comes a little bit after maybe 
uh, the entry level. Uh, I, I thought that was, was sort of, uh, felt like a lot of miles to me until maybe I sat back and, and thought about it and said, yeah, I guess uh, in, in Conway, uh, Conway's opinion, certainly uh, uh, it takes a long time to really uh, get up to speed. Wonder if you had any, any thoughts, Dan, about that program or any of our other panelists about a program like that, uh, if that might be common uh, elsewhere or uh, if there's a feeling that something like that clearly uh, might be needed uh, to make sure someone is uh, fully prepared for all the challenges that they may face on the road. Sure. I mean, it, it, uh, again, uh, it takes time. And, and companies have to devote the time that it really takes to uh, train people properly. Um, uh, maybe another thing to keep in mind, too, is uh, it's not just what you teach, but how. Uh, in Tommy's experience, uh, um, you know, every driver trainer uh, brings his own background and experience to the job, so there really isn't any consistency uh, across the board, but um, um, uh, it's, uh, um, you know, people need to um, think about that if they're going to uh, uh, have a, um, a standard, some any kind of minimum training standards. You need to think about uh, uh, how you prepare people uh, for the jobs, how you set that up, and who's involved. So, um, um, and maybe just one other thing uh, that I take away from, from that interview is that, uh, you know, it's not just a question of getting bodies in the classroom or to training. It's, it's um, selecting the people who have uh, the, the best potential to, uh, um, to be truck drivers and stay on the job. So there's a lot of fallout um, uh, from people who uh, go into this job and then don't stay. Right, so I think people need to do more work, um, you know, um, perhaps psychological profiles or something like that, to look at who um, has the, the the right attitude and the right um, um, skill set to to become good truck drivers. Yeah, that's a good point. I also want to, uh, if anyone has uh, comments about what Dan said, also want to uh, mention a couple people had asked uh, ahead of time. Uh, is there any discussion about training the trainers, whether as part of this panel or, or just what is the process? People would ask things, uh, should there be a, a minimum length of time before becoming a trainer? Uh, does one need to be accident-free forever a certain amount of time? Uh, quite a few people seem to want to get, just get some sort of inkling as to uh, decide what those training standards should be for the incoming, how to make sure that uh, from the trainer side that, uh, that um, you're getting the right right trainer at the same time. Yeah, one of the issues that we are going to cover is uh, instructors. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, CVTA has an instructor certification program, which uh, takes somebody's experience and teaches them really how to train mm -hmm. um, individual, uh, individual drivers. Um, so uh, we anticipate that uh, we'll delve into that. Uh, it hasn't been announced yet mm -hmm. uh, when we'll tackle that subject, but it will be uh, addressed. Um, Dan, do you have? Uh, did you? I, you I did want to jump in and just to sort of comment that Tommy is exactly right. In, in your conversation with him, Dan, one of the things he talks about is the necessity of spending time on the road. Uh, and the current rule that that is out there that the court vacated back in 2004 uh, and sort of started this whole mess all over again was knocked out because there was no behind the wheel time attached to it. Mm -hmm. And we do know that the more time someone spends behind the wheel the more effective they are going to be as a, as a driver. There's no real substitute for time where you are behind the wheel looking at 
what you're moving through. It's it's also uh, I think important to uh, to note that um, one of the things that won't be covered in this rulemaking though is uh, uh, finishing schools. So um, we know I know a lot of our carriers um, and obviously ATA members have finishing schools, but that's uh, one of the things that the um, the rulemaking will be. Uh, uh, not addressing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of we got a question that's come in live here from uh, Michael Irwin, uh, asking about in regards to the committee and, and the potential rule of proposal. Uh, uh, just understanding a little bit more skill. Uh, will this be based on skill or performance? Uh, wondering if you have any thoughts to address that. Is that the same thing? Is, the, is that viewed differently? Is that not something that has fully been? Uh, sorted out yet uh, with the committee that's something that might be on the table in the, the handful of meetings that to come over the next couple months. And, and, and I think that sort of skill, that I, I may be misunderstanding the question. Uh, to me, skill and performance uh, mean sort of the same thing. Uh, a performance based, when we talk about that, what we mean is demonstrating competency in a skill. Exactly. And that's contrasted with, say, having to spend three hours working on a skill. Uh, there's a big difference there. Uh, three hours is I did my 180 minutes, check, move on. Uh, Performance-based or skills-based is it doesn't matter how long I did it, I've now shown an instructor that I have competency in the mm -hmm. skill. And that's, I, I hope that answers your question, Mike. Uh, yeah, actually it's a larger trend in education mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. competency-based. I uh, want to toss this out maybe to Dan or, or anyone. Uh, Dan speaks with a lot of fleets. Uh, we've got some questions about uh, how many fleets might be training. Uh, are there advantages? Do those fleets have advantages or not? And maybe some of what uh, our guests or panelists are, are involved with is sort of possibly leveling the playing field. I uh, wonder if you could uh, speak to that at all. Um, I have no idea how many fleets have finishing programs, if, if that's or what you're asking. Or the training schools. Or training schools. But, um, yeah, uh, more fleets are considering uh, establishing driver training schools. Uh, I think just last week, Celadon uh, Trucking, for example, announced that they're opening a new facility. Um, this has kind of been fluctuated uh, up and down over the years. You know, when there's a, a, a need for drivers, uh, companies will sometimes uh, set up schools. Uh, and when there's uh, plenty of drivers, uh, this is an expense they can do without. So it, uh, I think we're in a period now where companies are giving some serious consideration to this. I think we're seeing a lot of fleets try to work more closely with schools and saying, you know, leave the res main responsibility for training in their hands, but have a, a say in the, pro in the curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, helping them develop um, drivers that that they can uh, hire immediately and, and and fit into their operations. So there's there's a lot of good discussions um, and cooperation going on between schools and fleets. Um, I might mention one thing that came up actually just yesterday. We were had the opportunity to s to talk with um, a gentleman from UPS who was saying that uh, they have a um, a school. Um, uh, that they've set up in Landover, Maryland, which um, uh, trains their package delivery guys. And it's actually a little s a mini city that they've created to actually do the uh, deliveries and so on and so forth. Very elaborate um, process. Um, but they, um, they have discovered um, that the people who go through this training are safer, uh, more productive, 
and cost the company less uh, than people who don't. So as a consequence, uh, UPS is going to open uh, at least a half a dozen more facilities like this, and eventually they uh, expect to train every single driver in their system. Hmm. Um, that, that's a lot of drivers That's a huge too, call, that, right? Because they, they have over 100,000 vehicles on the road every day. Hmm. Um, so um, I think that's, that's uh, an indication that uh, training is valuable, and uh, if you're not doing it, you perhaps should. One more question's come in. I want to just get to this one, and we're going to shift gears uh, again, and we'll be into more of the questions uh, before the end of, of the program. Uh, will requirements be different for local versus uh, over-the-road drivers? I don't know uh, if, if, again, with only one meeting down, it feels like there's <coughs> a lot that still needs to be sorted out, but uh, wanted just to raise I, that I, for any. I answers. would highly doubt it. That's just spe that's speculation on my part, but. Um, you know, a uh, person may start off as an o OTR driver and then move local, mm -hmm. or perhaps vice versa. Good point. So, good point. It, it would be very difficult for the government to establish a system that puts requirements that are different than the endorsements or the licenses it gives out now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it's going to be, and I think it is likely that you will see different requirements for Class B versus Class A. Uh, and in as much as a lot of local deliveries may often be done in Class B vehicles, you could see some difference there. Uh, but the difference between Class B over the road and Class B you know, local or P&D or Class A local and P&D versus OTR, that's just not going to exist. One reason being that it would just be very difficult for the agency or the state licensing agencies that ultimately have to check and make sure that you have your, your ELDT uh, to somehow ascertain that you had the correct you know, local or OTR training. Yeah. Okay, so any viewers joining us late, uh, I'm Neil Apt, I'm Editorial Director of uh, Transport Topics, joined today by Boyd Stevenson of American Trucking Associations, uh, Don Lefebvre, President of Commercial Vehicle Training Association. And on the end there is Dan Berth, uh, TT's senior features writer. Uh, you can send your comments and questions to us uh, at share at ttnews.com. You can comment also within this article page, and we're going to be getting to more of the questions. Thank you for sending them in, and we will be getting to more of them uh, in a little bit. I uh, want to shift to some of the other issues beyond just a training uh, that are out there that all sort of we feel at Transport Topics goes to this uh, driver shortage issue, which uh, everyone uh, uh, knows very well. One uh, which uh, Dan wrote a story about about a year ago now that uh, uh, was a source. Uh, Don was included in this story and believe shortly we're going to put a website uh, up on our screen where people can go back and, and read the full version that appeared in the Transport Topics print edition regarding processing delays of CDLs. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, maybe Don, if you could uh, uh, share a little bit about that uh, and, if, and, and what has transpired since, and Dan as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the issue um, is really uh, when an individual goes to take a skills test, um, there are a number of delays. Um, last year, uh, 22 members of Congress um, actually sent a letter requesting a GAO report, and uh, we anticipate that report uh, which will examine this delay issue should uh, come out later this year. 
Um, what we have experienced and a number of our schools have experienced, uh, and most importantly, our students are, are experiencing, are delays of upwards of 45 days in some places like California. And uh, uh, so this is a, a the, the primary distinction and why these delays we think are occurring is you have uh, certain states that test solely through their DMVs mm -hmm. and other states that test um, through third-party contractors in addition to their DMVs. And what we have found through just our uh, research is that the delay times in states that only have uh, testing through DMVs are significant mm -hmm. wait times. And, and this is a, it really impacts the student. A student typically has a pre-hire letter mm -hmm. from, a or multiple pre-hire letters from a carrier and is waiting to get into that job, but they can't get into that job without the CDL. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, you know, if it takes 45 days to get an appointment to get tested, uh, God forbid they should fail, because then they're going to have an, that equal uh, time. So we're, we're calling on Congress to address mm -hmm. this year, uh, uh, to address this issue in the highway bill. Mm -hmm. uh, another, uh, beyond the delay issue, another uh, uh, Funding uh, is, is certainly on the table. I know, like I say, there was a little bit, uh, maybe unlike the CDL, some progress through the War Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which Congress passed and, and the President signed into law into July. This also is a story that Dan Berth covered at the time. Uh, we're also making uh, that story uh, <coughs> available uh, to uh, uh, viewers today. They can uh, see the URL that's going to be posted on the screen and, 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 and learn more about that. Uh, I know it, it, one of the things that sort of changes, uh, if, I'm, if I remember, work for how workforce funding is allocated and this idea about in-demand professions. Sure, sure. I wonder if you could speak a little to that. Yeah, so last year um, the Congress passed, the President signed, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, what we commonly called WIOA. Um, and what it does is it links grant funding uh, to in-demand occupations. Um, so if an individual wanted to attend a uh, training program, uh, that uh, training program would have to be considered, obviously, in-demand. And w what, uh, w when the law was designed, it really had a, uh, a focus on local um, jobs. Mm -hmm. And what we are fearful of is that um, unless our voice is heard and that people know how in-demand trucking is, we could actually be cut out of some of that funding. And the reason being, um, a, a company in uh, you know, Montana may hire a student from Florida, for example, to drive for them. And what we're trying to make the argument to governors and workforce boards are tr all trucking jobs are essentially local because they can be filled by somebody in that uh, uh, in, in their uh, uh, community. Uh, to, in fact, we are, uh, are announcing a, a grassroots campaign that we hope to, uh, to uh, get all trucking associations behind and, and would love everybody's support on that. Um, if you go to cbta.org, mm -hmm. um, we, we have it says, Stop the Driver Shortage Now. And mm -hmm. a lot of students you know, do rely upon uh, the WIOA grants to attend, get training, which is exactly what we want. We want mm -hmm. good quality uh, drivers out on the road. Uh, Dan, uh, I know uh, besides these uh, uh, issues which uh, you have been writing about the last year, you uh, uh, have been looking at the, the driver shortage and, and the funding issue uh, uh, a little bit more. I know you also spoke uh, with Doug. Maybe you want to address that. 
Yes, and I think we'll go to the video uh, momentarily, but yes, yeah, so, uh, Doug Akers uh, at Ozarks Technical Community College uh, will speak in a moment about uh, uh, what he sees as uh, funding uh, issues and how it affects his ability to, to train drivers. But um, um, yeah, this is again, this is something that uh, schools and, and, and fleets have to work together on because uh, there are jobs waiting for these people, but um, uh, uh, carrying uh, those drivers through the training program and until they get on the job is, is a, a real hurdle. So um, we're seeing fleets uh, come up with um, um, reimbursement programs, you know, where uh, your cost of training will be covered uh, if you stay on the job for a certain length of time. Uh, that's very helpful. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we've already talked about the Federal Job Training Grant Program and uh, 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 it, it's it's a little um, uh, to me it's a little uh, odd to, to, to see uh, um, uh, jobs that are in demand going uh, begging because uh, uh, you can't get the the funds and the and the students uh, uh, connected. Uh, it's, it seems pretty obvious that 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 would be beneficial to all parties, but. Um, but it is a problem um, at each local uh, community getting those, making those connections. So, can we go to the footage? Please. We know a lot of students uh, rely on um, grants and uh, and uh, loans to to attend driver training programs. Um, and we've seen some legislation in this past year to uh, uh, to focus more on, on job training assistance, uh, have you seen a change uh, in the amount of money available to students to uh, to take driver training courses? Well, I in my region, um, it's really been cut back. Uh, I know they've divided out the bucket differently from the feds. Uh, they've renamed the program, um, but with uh, our Missouri Career Centers are the folks who deal with the uh, Worker Investment Act training dollars, which again has been renamed, but that's yeah. Uh, but uh, I've seen uh, they have had less ability to deal with uh, training uh, and less training dollars for us. I I've gone out and uh, partnered with an educational community credit union that caters to educational needs. And because of my where I, I work uh, at the community college here in the city, they partnered with us and they have a very low interest rate loan. And that helps us with some of our students as well. So we're looking at private sources. We work with the Missouri Career Centers, um, which is inconsistent depending on what the feds do. Um, VA, voc rehab, uh, so we're, we're pushing all those agendas. But funding is a foundational issue and a foundational problem that we have to be able to deal with uh, to get these folks in and trained. So, Is there something companies can do to help um with uh, the financing or the uh, funding of training at schools, do you think? Yeah, I do. Uh, we're going to have to be uh, on the cutting edge. We're going to need to be innovative. Uh, folks are afraid of contracts. Um, employers don't want to put out dollars up front, and I don't blame them. They don't get return on investment until uh, you know later on. Uh, when you're talking about a 20% retention rate on student uh, programs, uh, for that's what my folks are telling me. They're afraid to put those dollars out, but they also see they have to. Um, that's where I think we need to partner uh, with uh, different employers, work with them for them to hire folks in that they want, 
uh, we look at the psychological profiling that can be done by private uh, private sources uh, versus the state agencies who are doing the same thing uh, to, that identifies these folks that are more than more likely to stay. Um, I just know uh, a private source job behaviors. Uh, you know, he they talk about how well they've worked with Arkansas, Wisconsin, a 70% retention rate through their programs. Uh, honestly, if the employer had almost a guarantee or lack of a better word, but a better opportunity to have 7% retention rate, then I think they'd be a little more uh, generous as far as putting those dollars out and getting those folks in. So, Can you tell us a little about what you're doing at the Ozark uh, Technical Community College to expand your program for training? Um, Yes, actually, what we're we're in the uh, we're in the works, um, but the basic course gets them the Class A CDL. That's really not going to change. We've worked to where we can work with people's work schedules and everything else, but we're talking about adding an internship uh, or an externship. Uh, we're partnering with possibly the Convoy of Hope, and we've been talking to those folks about that. We're gonna for the folks who aren't attached to any employer. Uh, if employers are sending them to us, we're going to talk to our local employers about. Um, partnering with them and putting those folks in their trucks on an or an internship. Uh, we talk about how we can help minimize the wages, uh, training wages, uh, OJT programs with the Missouri Career Centers, uh, the, uh, the workforce development uh, uh, departments of the state, um, and help those folks go there. Then we're also uh, looking at expanding and talking uh, to our industry. Uh, well. Uh, as a consulting piece, we're talking to a third-party uh, vendor right now to where we're going to partner with those and talk to about uh, consulting with finishing programs uh, as well as doing a train-the-trainer that we're talking about getting certified uh, to where we can uh, help folks supply those drivers and then train those drivers properly. So we're getting pretty aggressive as far as looking at that, but again, we're it's in the idea stage, and so we're, 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 we're seeing how that's going to run. Yes, hello. Um, well, thank you uh, for Doug uh, uh, Akers talking to us from his office in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Um, he's got his hands full there trying to uh, uh, train drivers uh, for, for the many trucking jobs available in that market. Um, you'll, see the, you'll be able to see the full uh, um, interview online when uh, this program is uh, completed. Um, and one of the things you'll, you'll hear uh, Doug's talk about is uh, why he supports uh, the idea of setting minimum training standards for entry-level drivers. Um, he believes it will level the playing field and lead to better candidates uh, for trucking jobs and potentially lead uh, to uh, a way for, drive for companies to hire younger drivers. And I know that's a, uh, an issue for, for many fleets. Uh, uh, because uh, right now you need to be a minimum 21 uh, to get an interstate tr truck driving job. Uh, so potentially that could change. Maybe these driver training rules could be a way to uh, test these younger drivers and get them into trucks. And, and uh, thank you, Dan. And that's actually a, a question we received a couple of times, a, a few different ways. But in terms of trying to uh, grow that uh, driver pool base, I'll turn it back over to our, our guests here uh, about uh, is there any part of this that might address the 18 to 20 year olds 
uh, in anticipation maybe possibly of some uh, relaxing the, uh, of the rules. Related to that with the driver pool was about uh, will these rules apply to one's uh, potential drivers from developing nations that uh, they may be recruiting from. So people clearly have the shor driver shortage on their mind and, and are asking some of those questions. I'll turn it back to uh, both of you. Uh, the answer there is, is yes and no. Uh, do we expect to see any changes in the minimum age to operate in interstate commerce? No. That, that is going to probably stay at 21, and changing that is really out of the scope of the rule. That said, the part of the rule, uh, or the part of the U.S. Code that Congress stuck the requirement to put the rule in, actually controls interstate and intrastate commerce. So intrastate drivers, just like interstate drivers, are going to have to have entry-level driver training. And that's not going to matter if you are driving a bus, a truck, or any sort of commercial motor vehicle, uh, you're going to be required to get ELDT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you agree. Okay. Yeah, well, I do. we have some, some agreement here. Let me go to some of the questions that, that are coming in uh, that I promised we were going to uh, get to. Uh, can you explain, this came up uh, earlier, he sort of just uh, went by as someone to circle back. Uh, thank you for listening so intently. Uh, can you explain the difference between Class A and Class B? Yes. Um, and it has to do with whether or not you have an articulated vehicle. Um, a Class B truck is e most easily understood as a straight truck. It is 10,000 pounds or more. Um, a Class A truck uh, is a truck that is 10,000 pound, or sorry, a 27,000 pound truck that is, dr that is carrying a trailer 10,000 pounds or more. Um, a is uh, and you can always go down the alphabet. So anyone who has a Class A also has a Class B and a Class C. Uh, anyone who has a Class B also has a Class C. What you can't do mm -hmm. is go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, most drivers, uh, if, if you're unaware of which class of license you have, you almost definitely have a Class A license. Um, but that is really the difference. And that the training is going to work the same way. If you have Class A training, you're not going to need to get Class B training. Uh, it, it's sort of encompassed within mm -hmm. A. Uh, one question that uh, uh, has come in a couple of different ways, uh, does this apply to more than truck drivers? Uh, I think that's uh, assuming bus also, and, and it had been asked uh, to us uh, through this process, should there be any consideration to split bus and truck uh, up? So first, it does, uh, it does include bus, so let's just, just say that, because this is a commercial vehicle. The bus are included. People are just wondering, uh, a couple had asked, if there should be any consideration given between uh, separation between truck and bus. This is actually an area where I think that the committee did something really, really right. Mm -hmm. um, we agreed that there's need for a core curriculum that everyone has got to have, and that's going to be your class A. I don't care what kind of truck you're driving, uh, to my knowledge, that, well, I guess there are a very small number of class A buses. Uh, everyone's got to do this. And the same for Class B, which is most motor coaches, mm -hmm. uh, as well as a lot of straight trucks. But then we then said that, uh, and following the direction of Congress, there need to be some ELDT for a hazmat endorsement, uh, for, a, for a passenger endorsement, and for a school bus endorsement. So is there going to be some specialized bus training? Uh, yes. Yes, there is. Uh, on the truck side, we're looking at the hazmat would be one of the key areas where there would be a, a something additional, something specialized. Uh, beyond that, it would probably be uh, okay. Your experience. 
expecting at this point. I know nothing has been said, but that's what we're anticipating at this point. Right. We, we didn't look into the idea of the tanker endorsement or the LCB endorsement. The fact is there are already some pretty heavy regulations mm -hmm. that cover the sorts of training and knowledge and experience you have to have to get either of mm -hmm. those. Uh, I don't really think that there's a, a belief amongst many parties that those drivers who you know, we have data that says they are amongst the safest in the industry mm -hmm. uh, are in any way, shape, or form entry level. Uh, another question that's been asked a, a number of different ways, I'll try to sort of sum it up, is do, does a new driver have to go to a school? Uh, do, will will non-traditional school uh, training methods, even if it's uh, one was asked in a way of handing it down from generation to generation as opposed to the traditional school setting, uh, how might that play out uh, uh, through the uh, uh, rulemaking process? Well, th this actually was addressed uh early on in the committee uh, last time they met. Um, and the answer that we received was that, yes, you would have to go through a school or carrier program. Um, and um, it, that was the read of the uh, mm -hmm. FMCSA. Mm -hmm. uh, OK, we have from uh, Michael Adams, a training director at National Training, uh, had asked about uh, focus regarding not only pre-CDL training, but if there is any any discussion about post-CDL training. I know someone else had, had asked separately about uh, um, uh, post-collision training. If that is what uh, uh, the, the uh, group will be getting into, or if this is more about just setting those minimum standards to get that CDL initially. And this is about getting those minimum standards. And, and I think that we need to be very cognizant of the fact that generally what, we call, what, what we're calling post-CDL training today, uh, most carriers refer to as finishing school. Finishing school is not going away. There are some things that carriers are just going to want to make sure that their new drivers can do. Uh, you're going to do a road test for your new drivers. Even if you know they had a great road test from a very trusted school that did third-party testing or that they had a very, very competent state inspector doing their skills test, you have a, a regulatory obligation to know that your drivers are qualified. You're going to road test them. Mm -hmm. You're going to train them on uh, your, your logging methods. Uh, it, in fact, one thing that we know that the carriers actually tell the schools is please don't train them on electronic logging devices because there are so many different ELDs we want to make sure that we're just training them to ours instead of trying to undo the work you did and then train ours. Mm -hmm. So things like that are always going to happen mm -hmm. uh, and, and even if there is right now finishing school tends to involve uh, and right now it involves both safety culture and training Safety culture is always going to be a part there. The question is, how much of that training can we move to the before the CDL line, left of skills test? Mm -hmm. I want to make sure before we run out of time, and we're going to get to a handful more questions before we sign off today. Uh, still a couple in the queue. It's about insurance. Uh, that may not go directly to the, the panel and, 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 and what's going on, but we've received a number of comments uh, regarding I support what's going on, whether they, you know, they, they may have their own opinion that many have shared with us what they feel should happen, but we, we felt the groundswell of support for, for trying to sort this out. That had come with a big but or a big however. My insurance company is not as supportive of this idea <laughs> as I am. <laughs> so I guess uh, I, I guess if uh, there's any advice you may be able to give me, how this may play out, or, or any thoughts in terms of 
the, the insurance component in bringing less, less younger slash less experienced drivers into the uh, Actually, that I was going to say, we've, uh, we don't have an official position on mm -hmm. the younger driver. Um, and from what um, I have explored or, or discussed, I've, that's exactly my understanding, that the biggest hurdle is actually the um, insurance. Now, you do have a number of uh, carriers that self-insure, um, but uh, for especially moving to the younger drivers, I think mm -hmm. that may be the, the larger hurdle. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention uh, uh, reporter Jonathan, uh, TT reporter Jonathan Reiskin wrote about uh, this story, uh, wrote about this issue, uh, I believe it was in October, uh, spoke to a number of uh, uh, fleet executives uh, regarding uh, the insurance issue, you know, they recommended uh, having frank conversations uh, with their carriers and uh, with the insurance uh, carrier, I should say, to try to uh, address this and, and sort of come up with, uh, be, document the extensive training and, 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 and the methods uh, that go on. But uh, the fleet executives back in October also uh, agreed that uh, this, this was a problem, uh, something that uh, has not gone away yet and, and, and is a hurdle to uh, uh, getting more uh, younger drivers. Uh, another question that, that uh, came in um, in thinking about this uh, training standard at the federal level is should there be a national CDL uh, versus kind of the state uh, the state system if they need to sort of rethink that based on what this federal committee is putting together? Sure. Um, first of all, I, I think a national CDL is a political unreality. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we have a constitutional gov system of governance that uh, re leaves a lot of powers in the hands of states, and uh, the states are very, very, very zealous in guarding the powers that they do have. Uh, at, at the end of the day, identification and, and licensing is just not a federal mm -hmm. function. Uh, so before we get into the merits of it, I think that we should definitely note that politically it's, it's unreachable. Uh, might things be easier to track if we had a federal license? Uh, you can make that argument, but I think we can also make the argument that, you know, we have 50 states and they are all very competent at what they do, mm -hmm. um, and and they are they are showing that they are just as good at keeping track of those matters uh, as the federal government might be. Uh, related to that, uh, we may be getting close to a FMCSA nominee. Uh, Scott Darling is the acting administrator. He took over for uh, Ann Farrah, who departed last year. Uh, Darling referenced at a congressional hearing um, that his uh, tenure is going to be coming up very soon. I believe March 23rd is the date he suggested, which has led to speculation that a nominee may be forthcoming. You can keep an eye out on ttnews.com and uh, the weekly edition of Transport Topics uh, as that unfolds. You had mentioned uh, FMCSA is a member, I believe it's Larry Minor, if, if, uh, is represented on the panel. Uh, is there any concern that if a nominee comes in with his or her own thoughts that this could anyway derail it, that, that, or this is far enough down the tracks and, and established that, that there's no concern there? You know, at the end of the day, the administrator is the person in charge of the agency, so mm -hmm. I would never say never. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, you, you have very large agreement across really all of the stakeholders in the industry. Uh, you have the carriers, uh, both truck and motor coach. You have those groups that, uh, that advocate for tighter restrictions. You've got the schools and 
it, it can never hurt to have the people that really are kind of tinker around the edges of your rules trying to do that tinkering in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's very unlikely we mm -hmm. would see any change. Uh, and probably the last question, I know we're not going to be able to get to all of them. Uh, we, we appreciate uh, everyone who, who's taken the time to uh, send in their questions and comments to us. One is uh, people want to know either a twofold. Will transcripts be available of these meetings and or how can they feel that their voice could be heard in this process? Have any Tra transcripts will not be made okay. available. If they uh, uh, would like to feel that they can be be part or at least uh, have have their voice heard, what would what words would you recommend? Um, contact your representative mm -hmm. or a representative on the uh, committee. Mm -hmm. You know, can contact me, Boyd, uh, or any of the committee members to have your voice heard. And you, uh, the, the committee is actually constituted technically as a federal advisory committee. Uh, and from that angle, uh, if you write to FMCSA and to the Federal Advisory Committee, uh, I think you have to give them something like 72 hours. But uh, the next meeting after 72 hours have elapsed, they actually have to give a copy of that communication to every member. Um, and the easiest way to do that is to email ELDTAC, uh, which is Entry Level Driver Training Advisory Committee, at dot.gov. Uh, and if you send something to them, uh, the federal law will compel the agency to make sure that it gets put in front of every member of the committee. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you. I very quickly want to turn back to Dan as we're wrapping up here. Uh, one of the main projects he's working on right now is our 2015 Logistics 50 listing. Uh, people familiar with our Live on Web series here, we, we did in November when the uh, 2014 came out. We shifted to the spring. I know as soon as we're done here, we're going to send Dan back to get back working on it because time's ticking, Dan. But why don't you give us a, uh, a very brief uh, update on, on where that stands, and we'll, we'll talk about our next Live on Web after that. Sure. Well, we're, we're very close to finishing uh, our research for the top 50 logistics companies list uh, for this year, um, which, as Neil said, will be published April 13th. So. Um, I'll be um, um, attending the uh, Transportation Intermediaries Association Convention in Orlando that same week, and uh, we'll make a special presentation there um, of the list. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Dan will be presenting, uh, anyone at TIA will be presenting on Saturday. There are also senior reporter Rip Watson will be participating on a panel on that uh, Thursday. The uh, TT Logistics 50 will come out as part of the uh, April 13th print edition. We're here to announce today that our next Live on Web will be Tuesday, April 14th at noon Eastern. Uh, Dwayne Long, who is, uh, is the head of Longistics, is also the current chairman of American Trucking Associations. He will be joining us in studio. Uh, we very much are looking forward to that. Uh, and stay tuned, uh, the Live on Web uh, uh, for more details regarding uh, guests and, and, and the program itself. Uh, we are very much uh, looking forward to the next one. Uh, as we wrap up here, I want to make sure that I thank both Don and Boyd for taking the time with us today and their insights. Uh, Don mentioned earlier, uh, CVTA.org is where you could get some information regarding the uh, Workforce uh, Act. I want to uh, extend a special offer to anyone watching that's not yet a subscriber to our weekly print edition. You can visit liveonweb.ttnews.com slash subscribe for an extended free trial. 
Uh, included in that, as I said, will be the Logistics 50 publication included April 13th. As a reminder, a replay of our entire program today, as well as the complete interviews with Tommy Fox and Doug Akers, will be available on our website shortly. Uh, I want to thank them for taking the time to participate uh, and taking time out of their schedules to be part of it as well, our program. I also want to thank our sponsors, Contract Leasing Corporation and your company resource. Uh, I'm Neil Apt on behalf of Dan Berth and our full TT and ATA Live on Web staff. Thank you for joining us today.